Welcome back to NALFA's Affordable Housing Podcast. I'm your host, Allison Ward, NALFA's Senior Membership and Operations Associate. For today's episode, I'm joined by Josh Brandwine, NALFA's Director of Government Affairs, and a special guest, Jacob Carter, Director of Government Affairs for the National Lumber and Building Material Dealers Association and the Window and Door Manufacturers Association for a post-election recap for the U.S. House and Senate races. Thank you both so much for joining me today for this exciting episode. Happy to be here. Thank you, Alice. So let's dive right in. So what are your initial reactions to the midterm election results? Well, I think it's safe to say that the expected red wave uh, that was predicted to happen with big Republican majority gains did not happen. so I think uh, it was a little bit of a shock to those who were expecting um, both houses to flip. So obviously that did not happen, as we'll talk about a little later. Um, but Jacob, what are, what are some of your initial That's thoughts? That's to put it lightly, Josh. This is a stunner. Uh, you know, Republicans all year have been predicting to win upwards of 30, 40, 50. And, you know, by some accounts, McCarthy had bragged about getting potentially 60 seats in the House. Um, they were calling this potentially the biggest red wave in history or the biggest election uh, uh, wave in history uh, for a midterm. And that just did not pan out. You know, Republicans ended up getting uh, right now is projected to be about 10 seats, uh, well short of 30, 40, 50 or 60 seats. Um, it's giving Kevin McCarthy a really slim majority in the House. You know, right now, Republicans probably going to get 222 seats. Well, Democrats will end up with 213 um, and he needs 218 seats to uh, become Speaker of the House in January. So it's given him a very slim majority. And even if he gets that speakership, it's going to give him two years of constant headaches trying to navigate a uh, divided Republican caucus with not a lot of wiggle room. Yeah, and I think, you know, it. a lot of people will sit here and draw conclusions from what happened. But, you know, um, the, what does that say, the current state of the Republican Party, the current state of the Democratic Party? There were a lot of preconceived notions going into the election about where each party was moving forward as far as what direction they were trending in. And uh, I think safe to say that this election kind of refocused that conversation in a way. Yeah, absolutely. If you're Republicans, you can still walk away happy that you got the House of Representatives. You wrestled control of the House away from Democrats. Um, That being said, you know, you're, you're sore, sorely missing out on a massive majority that you could have had and that you thought you would have. And then over in the Senate, they did not take the Senate. Democrats held on to the Senate. Um, so, you know, Republicans can be happy about taking the House, but Democrats are definitely very happy about keeping the Senate and limiting their losses in the House. If you're Joe Biden in the White House, this was a victory. Um, if you're Mitch McConnell or if you're Kevin McCarthy, uh, th- this is a, a, a sour taste to, to walk away with. I think it's also important to look at it from a historical lens. Uh, you know, over, over the last 20, 30 years, the sitting incumbent in the White House usually takes some pretty big losses, especially in the House of Representatives during that first midterm election, during their first term. So if you're uh, Joe Biden and his staff in the West Wing, you know, this is, this is quite the, uh, the surprise. You know, on average, since uh, World War II, uh, the, the, the party that controls the White House loses 24 seats in their first midterm. Uh, right now, it's only 10 seats, and they kept on to the, the Senate chamber. Um, you know, it, 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 it's troubling if you're Republican, especially in the year where every district was Jarrow is redistricted, 
We just had a census in 2020. So these are brand new districts in 2022. Republicans control most state legislatures throughout the country. This is a chance and opportunity for them to really carve out what we call gerrymandered districts that be more Republican leaning and favorable for them to pick up a lot more seats. Um, they strategically position themselves to, to get a lot more seats and it just did not happen. Well, it sounds like we have quite a bit to talk about today. Let's focus ourselves on the House for a second. What are your thoughts of about the House races and specifically the new Republican majority? Well, I think for me personally, I think, uh, you know, going back to the Jerry gerrymandering, uh, alteration of the districts, you know, New York, there were a lot of houses that flip Republican uh, in New York. A lot of the uncalled races late uh, after the election was held out in California. A lot of those went Republican. Um, you know, with all that being said, you had some Democrats hold on to their seats. So I think it was, as I was saying earlier, it was expected that there was going to be a Republican majority. But like you were saying, it's going to be a historically slim majority. And I think you could look at that also as a very interesting reflection of where the general electorate is right now and how citizens are voting in their respective districts. Yeah, the two states that Republicans did really well in were New York, where they gained a lot of House seats there. And they actually dethroned uh, Sean Patrick Maloney, the uh, chairman of the DCCC. Um, and the other state is Florida, where you know Ron DeSantis and Marco Rubio had big wins, and they flipped a lot of seats there, too. Um, so those are the two places where Republicans did really well. But across the country, I think the surprising thing is, is uh, Democrats managed to flip a few incumbent seats. You know, they, they ousted Yvette Harrell from New Mexico as Republican incumbent in a close race. Um, and if you look across the map, there's a lot of places where Republican incumbents actually lost their elections. Uh, you know, so, so it's surprising that Democrats did uh, far better than they thought they would. I think it's also important to note that, you know, if you're if you're a Democrat coming off of the summer going into the fall, you're running off of a platform that was based off of uh, some wins coming from the White House with the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, especially after earlier in the summer, higher gas prices. Some were worried about whether or not that platform is going to be sustainable. But in the end, you know, when you looked at the Democratic uh, platform, not many people in the party who are running for office were straying away from that platform too much. And as opposed to Republicans, you kind of have a little bit more of a variety of, you have some Trump brand Republicans in a way who are running more of a, on a platform that's familiar to the former president, Donald Trump. You have more moderates and then you have everything in between. So I think it's, there was more of a, Unified platform, you could say, of the Democrats as opposed to Republicans, who was more of a spectrum of variety on what they're running on. Well, one of the big metrics to look at, especially in the midterm year, where it's not a general election, where the White House is on the line, is voter enthusiasm. If you go back to March, you know, the Republicans had massive amounts of voter enthusiasm. They weren't happy about Joe Biden being the White House. They weren't happy about Democrats controlling both the Senate and the House. They weren't happy about the way the pandemic was going. As you noted, uh, inflation was on the rise. Gas prices were on the rise. Um, but something flipped over the summer. And there's a few things to look at there. You know, the White House obviously got the Inflation Reduction Act passed. They got the Chips and Science Act passed. They got some major pieces of legislation that suddenly Democrats could run and campaign on. Uh, as well as, you know, we, we, we can't avoid it. There's the Roe v. Wade decision, um, which, you know, uh, overturning Roe v. Wade from the Supreme Court down really energized the Democratic base. And you saw evidence in this. 
uh, with the statewide elections in Kansas in August and a few special elections in New York and Minnesota. Um, and you saw suddenly Democrats getting really excited to turn out to vote, to the polls and vote. Um, and there's this always guessing game leading up to November, right? Where you thought like, you know, will that matriculate to actual results? Will that lead to, to, to results for Democrats? Um, it seems to be one of the few main factors, but it seems to have helped out the Democratic base to come out and turn out to the polls to, to you know, upset a lot of Republican hopes. Mm-hmm. So jumping over to the Senate side, I hear there were some pretty tight races. Well, I think... Looking back, uh, you know, watching the election results come in on election night, uh, I think the early shock was the win of Democratic nominee John Fetterman, former or current lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania, against uh, Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania. I think that was quite the, uh, the initial shock, especially considering uh, the debate that they had uh, a few weeks prior to that. Um, so I think that kind of set the tone. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of big Senate races going into this campaign, into this election. Uh, you know, heading into this, the Senate split 50-50 with Democrats holding control because of the White House and you know, Vice President Kamala Harris being a tiebreaker. Um, but all Republicans need is one seat to, seat to flip the majority. Um, so you get big Senate races in, in Pennsylvania, in Ohio, in Georgia, uh, in Arizona, in uh, New Mexico. Um, and a lot of those, you know, for, uh, big parts of the summer were trending towards Republicans. Uh, and then, you know, didn't necessarily turn out that way. So, yeah, in Pennsylvania, I think it's the most interesting race of them all. Um, that's a seat that's formerly held by, or is currently held by Senator Pat Toomey, the Republican who's been there for the last 12 years. Uh, he's a moderate, or he, he's been able to work across the lines with Democrats. Um, this is a seat that Democrats have been trying to flip for a long time and have been unable to do so. Um, so when you have someone like John Fetterman, who's Lieutenant Governor of Pennsylvania, who made a big name for himself in 2020 on all the cable news networks, defending Joe Biden's presence in Pennsylvania, and you have someone like a celebrity like Matt Oz, who was a Trump-endorsed candidate and won the primary because of that, much to the chagrin of people like Mitch McConnell, um, it created a really interesting dynamic there. Now, John Fetterman was always projected to be uh, Mehmet Oz early on. You know, they, they successfully campaigned against Mehmet Oz as being a carpetbagger, as being a celebrity who's out of touch with an average uh, Pennsylvania voter. Um, but, you know, one of the big X factors there is John Fetterman had a, had a stroke a few months ago. And, you know, the campaign drastically changed from that moment. Uh, you know, that, that, that took away Fetterman's ability to go out and campaign, to go out and knock on doors, to get public speeches, to, to cut ads. And you saw Dr. Oz, you know, as he's famously known, uh, really attack that, you know, that point. I think one of the very first campaign ads that came out with after that is him running in the park talking about how healthy he is. That's not by accident. Um, another thing that they did is that they, they pulled heavily on the issue of crime. They made crime one of the big kind of central focus messages that John Fetterman is weak on crime. And you saw that even to John Fetterman's uh, approval ratings in Pennsylvania as months went by. And suddenly a race where John Fetterman was up by eight points over the summer, you know, going into September and October, it was dead even. And John Fetterman's only up by one point, or some polls down by one. Um, so the d- debate that you mentioned that happened in October, uh, there's only one debate, usually there's more, uh, but Fetterman's team really did not want to do that debate. Now, obviously, uh, Fetterman's having issues and stroke complications. He can't speak properly, uh, at least in front of an audience. And uh, they did not necessarily want to do that debate. And when they, you know, 
agreed to do that debate, uh, the Met Austin seems to be really happy about that. And the Met Austin very well did that debate. Um, and you know, uh, I personally thought that that was a, a, a big change in the momentum of who might win this race. Um, so, as you said, like one of the big results of the night was Federman actually that out. It was called relatively early compared to all the other races. He was the first kind of indication that Democrats were going to have a big night. It was Federman winning that seat in Pennsylvania. And just to reiterate, that's not just Democrats winning a seat, that's them flipping a seat. So you go from a 50 57 now to 51 49 if everything was stable. And I think after that, you know, uh, you start looking out west and Mark Kelly being able to hold on to Arizona, same with uh, Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, very close. Ultra close races. Very Cortez close. Masto's race wasn't called until 10 days after the election. Um, and she was losing up until the very end as you know, ballot boxes were coming in and, and, and uh, absentee ballots were being counted. Um, and she eked that one out. Um, and she was running against Attorney General Adam LaSalle, uh, who had replaced her when she was Attorney General of Nevada. Um, and that was a race that Republicans really thought that they could flip. And, you know, that was, that was one of their big key uh, components taking Senate control. Um, and them not being able to flip that seat uh, was a big deal. Uh, and as you mentioned in Arizona, you know, uh, Senator Mark Kelly, who's the incumbent there, former astronaut, was able to beat Blake Masters, who's the uh, head, hedge fund manager for billionaire Peter Thiel. Um, and Peter Till, you know, he lost the race in Arizona, his candidate, but, you know, he did pick up a seat in Ohio with J.D. Vance, who held on to Rob Portman's seat, who's the current incumbent senator. They were able to beat Tim Ryan there. So, you know, if you want to look at some important pictures for Republicans across the map, you know, they, they did win in Ohio, which is a seat currently held by Republicans, and they kept on to that seat. They won a big race in Wisconsin. Ron Johnson, the current incumbent senator there, was able to uh, uh, defeat Mandela Barnes. Um, and that's a seat that Democrats really want to take. They've been trying, they've been begging to get Ron Johnson out of the Senate for a while. He beat Russ Feingold six years ago um, when Russ Feingold tried to make a comeback into the Senate. And he originally said he was only going to run for two terms. And as politicians do, you know, when they hit that end of the limit with a self-imposed limit, they changed their mind and said, no, I'm going to run again. And, you know, over the summer, he was down in a marquee law school pool by eight points. Was able to make up that difference by October, and he won pretty handily uh, come November. It was a very close race, won by a few ten thousand votes or so. Uh, but nonetheless, it was very important that Republicans held on to that seat. Um, but where they weren't able to make gains was in Arizona, that was held by Democrats. Nevada, that was held by Democrats. In Pennsylvania, that was flipped by Democrats. And with those three seats happening that way, going towards Democrats, that just kind of blocks off any passage that Republicans have to take control of the Senate. You know, some are saying it's an afterthought now if you're looking at it from the lens of who's going to have the majority, but still one race left to go. In Georgia, there's a lot of press around the race between uh, Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker, December 6th. So that's going to be an, an incredibly interesting race to see what transpires it's a there. very, very kind of fun race or a fascinating race to look at. You know, you've got Raphael Warnock, who's now running in his fourth election for the same Senate seat within, you know, two years. It's kind of ridiculous when you think about it. In 2020, he ran for a special election that came off to a, a, a too close to call, so he had to do a runoff where she won. Now, this time, it's too close to call, you know, against Herschel Walker. Neither of them got to 50%. Uh, Herschel Walker was losing by about 30,000 votes or so. But since that, they're going to have got to 50%. There's a rule in Georgia that there has to be a runoff. That's what's coming down to. And the important dynamic here now is, you know, Democrats for sure have 50 seats heading into the next Congress. Republicans are at 49. Um, if Republicans were to pick the seat off and flip the seat, it'd still be a 50-50 
Senate, the same exact Senate that we had, uh, uh, split that we had uh, for this Congress. Um, but what's important to note is that right now, for instance, on all the committees, because it's 50 50, they've got a working deal that, you know, there's equal amounts of senators on each right. side of the committee. If there's 12 members of the uh, 12 senators on one committee for the Republicans, that means there's 12 one for the Democrats, which means that they want to launch investigations. They need to have Democrats and Republicans both agree to that. If Democrats can get a 51 49 majority in the Senate with the special election, uh, that would give them a lot more power. You could give them extra committee seats on each single committee, which to then they can start issuing subpoena powers, it'd be easier to confirm judges. There's a lot more things possible for Democrats. I think it's also to look at if you have a 50-50 Senate split, members like a Joe Manchin, yeah. Senator Cinema have a lot more sway than if it were a 51 Yeah, majority, that's you know? a great point. If Democrats can, can get that 51-49 majority, suddenly removes the power that people like Manchin or Senator have. Um, it gives Democrats a lot of wiggle. Not that I think a lot will get passed since the House has, you know, is that's called Republicans for next Congress, but if they want to move forward on anything, um, that one extra seat, you know, takes away a lot of negotiating power that Manchin has and gives it back to Schumer. Sure. So it's never a dull moment. And these races set a really interesting scene for the rest of the 117th Congress and for the new session starting in January. So what does this divided Congress mean moving forward? Oh, gosh, I think it means nothing gets done in the next two years. <laughs> you know, you'll have your standard kind of appropriations bills move forward. There's a farm bill that needs to move forward next year. You'll have confirmations of judges from the Senate side. You'll have Republicans launching investigations on the House side with all the committee powers there. Um, but I think in earnest, nothing of consequence gets really done in the next few years. And this will be a deadlocked Congress. They'll be lobbying a lot of campaign war grenades uh, across the aisle. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of political theater. Definitely. You know, I think you're going to have some showdowns, government funding, debt ceiling, a lot of stuff that isn't necessarily geared towards actually governing, yeah. as you could say. And um, it all starts at the top, though, for Kevin McCarthy. You're coming into the leadership elections in the new year. And like we were talking about earlier with a very historically slim, thin majority, how do you wrangle all I mean, those members and make sure nobody strays off the path to, to get anything? This is a moment Kevin McCarthy has been waiting for the last 10 years. He's been building up for this. He wanted to be speaker eight years ago. That didn't necessarily turn out, but he's been waiting and fighting his time and raising money and campaigning for other members, developing friendships in the Republican caucus so that he can be Speaker of the House when they take the majority this time around. And he's on the cusp of doing it. Um, that slim majority makes it really difficult for him. He's going to have to negotiate with the House Freedom Caucus, who's about 40 members deep, many of which have stated they don't like or support McCarthy. Uh, but McCarthy will have some concessions that he can kind of trade away to get some of their support in favor, whether that's extra seats for them on the steering committee, whether it's extra committee seats, whether there's a seat at you know, the leadership table for Republicans. Uh, he'll probably find a way to make that work. Those will be painful concessions for him to make. Um, he was hoping to have a 20 or 30 kind of seat kind of flexibility where he could get a lot done. Um, that's probably not going to be the case this time around. And then the other you know, aspect I think that he's probably going to focus on in House Republicans will is you know, the 2024 presidential elections have already started. You know, former President Donald Trump has already announced he's running for president. Uh, lawmakers are having to you know, make their own decisions about when they, when they announce to run for president. Um, and if you're a House Republican or if you're a Senate Republican, you know, one of your main goals over the next year or two is to try to make the Democrats in the White House look weak, to attack Joe Biden. 
is to not let them get anything passed that makes them look good. Um, and so that's going to be a, an important consideration. And I think that's why very quickly, you know, Trump's already announced he's running for president. Uh, you'll see a lot of members or lawmakers, whether they're governors or federal lawmakers, start running for announcing that they're running for president in the next four or five months. You'll see GOP and Democratic primary debates start to happen as early as June of next year. Once those debates really get in the process, you know, and people start forming campaigns and hiring staff and doing fundraisers, the whole narrative of what's going on in Congress in Washington, D.C. changes. It all focus and all lies going towards 2024. Um, I think once that happens, and it seems to happen earlier and earlier every presidential election cycle, but once that starts in earnest, uh, nothing really gets done, right? So it's because, you know, it, 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 both Democrats and Republicans don't want to make each other look good, and they'll be attacking with them most of the next two years. I think it's also important to note that the next election cycle for the Senate, the Democrats are going to be defending many more oh, it's seats. Tough. It's tough, isn't it? So it'll be interesting if there's any room for any kind of negotiation between Chuck Schumer and Kevin Wisconsin yeah. to get anything done. Notably, Democrats are going to have to defend seats in 2024, Senate seats in Montana with John Tesser. He's an incumbent running for re-election. It's a very red state that went for Donald Trump. Both last two elections. We have Joe Manchin up for re-election. He is not decided. He's not announced he's going to run again. But gosh, if he doesn't run for Senate, Democrats are probably going to lose that seat. And he's already got a challenger and uh, Congressman Alex Mooney, a uh, Republican uh, member of the House in West Virginia. Um, and then also, you know, Sherrod Brown from Ohio is not going to, you know, Ohio's looking like a red state now. They, they voted for Trump both times last time. So, uh, you know, there, there, there's a lot of easy seats that Republicans can cherry pick. 2024 to take back the Senate, uh, and Democrats are going to be on the defense. Um, but you know, connecting that to 2022, the election that we just had, um, this was an opportunity for Republicans to, to to get a majority in the Senate and then build a much bigger majority with 2024. And that's the opportunity that they've lost. They'll probably still, you know, they'll they'll be predicted to win the Senate in 2024. But you know, even if they get the Senate that time, which gets the majority if it even happened that way. And We'll see who the nominees for each party's president will be, too, because they'll be on the ticket as well. It'll be fascinating to watch. You know, I, I think the, the, the big elephant in the room is watching Donald Trump run against Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, yes. for the Republican primary. Um, Very interesting. Know, it, the polling right now shows those two as the top front runners. They're, you know, Trump's already announced he's running. Ron DeSantis is absolutely going to run for president. Um, he's got the you know the fundraising network. He's been raising hundreds of millions of dollars. He's got the popularity. He's got the support of Trump supporters as well as you know establishment Republicans. Um, and he's also been crisscrossing the country, going to early voting states, meeting with mega donors. These are the signs that you look for when you identify people who are running for president. And you know it, it's a fascinating story because obviously Ron Santos was a congressman from Florida. Uh, he really came on to the scene where he ran for governor in a primary he was not going to win until Donald Trump came out and endorsed him, said, hey, my guy is Ron DeSantis. So only after Trump came out and endorsed him, you know, Ron DeSantis won that primary pretty easily. Then became governor of Florida by a very close election at the time. He won resoundingly this time. Four years later, you know, uh, we're after a pandemic uh, where Ron DeSantis come kind of peaking for Republicans about, you know, how do you carry the uh, Republican message forward? Mm -hmm. um, um, Trump's already came out, I think, after Election Day and gave a big statement against Ron DeSantis attacking him. Uh, they'd asked Ron DeSantis in an interview uh, whether he'd support Donald Trump's re-election or, or for if he were to run again. And Ron DeSantis gave a very, you know, gray and white answer of, I'm focused on Florida right now. And Trump saw that as a slight and came out and said, hey, 
Ron Santos is not being loyal. I endorse him. The only reason you know about Ron Santos is because of me. And here he's being unloyal. So you see Trump already lobbying attacks at Ron DeSantis. Uh, Ron DeSantis is trying to play coy and not respond to those attacks. But at some point, Ron DeSantis is definitely going to jump into this race. And uh, it's going to be a fascinating dynamic to watch play out. That it will. So going off script here, um, but I have to ask you, I have to pick your brains while you're, I have you both here. What are your thoughts on Donald Trump announcing his presidential run first, given that no one in history who has announced first has gone on to win the presidency? I think it, I think it was a big mistake in five minutes. Gosh, it's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think Donald Trump is used to having the media talk about him. And Donald Trump wants to announce he's running for president so that the media and the narrative will talk about him. I think Donald Trump was anticipating that Republicans were going to win the House by a lot and that they were going to win the Senate, that he could announce right after that and claim victory. And that the kind of uh, uh, the narrative would be is that Donald Trump's leading Republicans back to control the White House. Um, the results in the Senate, you know, went towards Democrats. The results in the House, uh, you know, Democrats outperformed a lot of projections and predictions. And then after you saw the results that happened, you know, Donald Trump got a lot of blame for what happened in the Senate, for instance. You know, Donald Trump had to endorse a lot of these Senate candidates that did not win, um, including the Met Oz in Pennsylvania, I think including Blake Masters in Arizona. And I think a lot of the press in the last couple of weeks has trended negative in a negative way for Trump. You know, and I, I think uh, in retrospect, a lot of people, because the... Everybody knew he was going to announce at some point. I think leading up to the election, it was just a matter of time. And then, of course, after the election happened and the, all the votes started getting tallied, then everybody, at least in the D.C. area, knew when he was going to announce. And, um, but like you said, you know, it's uh, Trump loves uh, people to talk about him and any press is good press. Yeah, I think it's the mistake of his team was uh, announcing, you know, leaking out that they were about to announce a big announcement, yeah. which everyone knew was going to be his run for presidency. But he did that before Election Day. And right. after the election results came in, not as everyone thought they would come in, you know, he couldn't take it back. So then he's going to, you know, suddenly he's got to admit weakness there. He's got to admit fault there. Um, and that's just not what he's going to do. And also, I think the big consideration there is everyone after the election was talking about how well Ron DeSantis is in Florida. Yeah. You're talking about him as a presumptive nominee for Republicans in 2024. So, you know, Trump wants, Trump wants to jump into that conversation, mix that conversation up, and have the media saying, talk about Trump running for president, not Ron DeSantis running for president. When you compare Trump to DeSantis, you also have to start wondering what are the fundraising networks going to look like? You know, where where is... Um, the establishment, the Republican establishment, where are they going to, which candidate are they going to focus on? Where, I mean, DeSantis hasn't announced anything yet, but when, yes. when he does, you know, where's ad money going to go? Is there going to be a shift in interest towards DeSantis? Is it going to be 50-50 DeSantis-Trump? Are people going to go back to Trump? So I think that'll be something yeah, interesting. You know, on that note, I think uh, two mega GOP donors that were supported Trump in 2020 and 2016 I've already announced that they're backing Ron DeSantis. They want Ron DeSantis to run this time around. But Donald Trump's always excelled at you know small fundraising amounts and, and, and getting you know his supporters to, to donate to him directly. Um, and so I think they'll both be able to raise a lot of money. Uh, and they both have their own kind of lanes of support, some that crisscross over each other. Um, it's just gonna be a fascinating race to watch. So I let us very far into the future. I'd like to back up for a minute. 
With January 2023 approaching rapidly, what are your expectations for the 118th Congress going into the new year? So I think something to bring up here, someone talking about the House, uh, we've talked about the leadership change with the Republican Party. Big news from the Democratic side of the House of Representatives with former Speaker Nancy Pelosi announcing that she's going to be stepping down and uh, Hakeem Jeffries of New York uh, coming into her role, and as well as the departing of James Clyburn and Steny Hoyer, some long-term leadership roles over the last 20 years. This is a massive change for the House Democrats. Change for the guard. You know, sure. Nancy Pelosi's been the top Democrat in the House uh, since 2002. That's always been her as number one. Steny Hoyer from Maryland is number two. And Jim Clyburn from South Carolina is number three. Um, there are all three of them in their, are in their 80s now. Um, I think a lot of Democrats have been sitting by and waiting uh, for them to retire or to step down from leadership. Nancy Pelosi two years ago or had said that she only won for one more term of leadership. Uh, she has kept her word. I think after House Democrats almost look like they might keep on to the majority, she may have changed her mind. The day, well, I think it was uh, the Wednesday that they announced that Republicans had hit 218 in the House, it was the same exact day that Nancy Pelosi came out and said, you know, I'm not ready for leadership, I'm passing on the uh, card. Um, but I think, you know, honestly, if Democrats had held on to the House, I think Nancy Pelosi would have stayed. Um, but I think, you know, it, you think I now got Hakeem Jeffries coming in, Catherine Clark from Massachusetts as her number two. And P. Aguilar from California as number three. It's a completely uh, new shift in House Democratic leadership. Uh, Nancy Pelosi was an extremely good fundraiser. Uh, I think I saw an estimate that she raised over a billion dollars for candidates or just her by herself over the last 20 years. It's a big amount, um, cycle in and cycle out. Uh, can Hakeem Jeffries match those amounts? Maybe not right away, but um, that's yet to be seen. And also, Nancy Pelosi was a very good vote counter. She's someone who tried the caucus together, which at many points the last two decades was extremely divided. Um, and that's why she was able to hold on to that for so long. Uh, we will see how, how, how the promise of Hakeem Jeffries and how well he's able to do this. It's a big victory for the CBC, the Congressional Black Caucus. You know, they wanted a, a member of their own to, to be the top Democrat for a long time. Uh, Jim Clyburn, for a while, was kind of in the stepping ranks there, um, but never quite made it. Uh, so for Hakeem Jeffries, this is a big deal for the CBC. This is a big deal, and uh, this will definitely change how uh, Democrats uh, have been running the House for the last two decades. And I think it's also important to note that, you know, we were talking about some strife between McCarthy and Freedom Caucus members, that there is no, absolutely no objection to the change of the guard with the Democratic Caucus in the House. It's just changing hands and absolutely no objection whatsoever. They definitely made some backdoor, backroom yeah. deals. And you know, everyone seems to be on board. Uh, all three of those people, King Jeffries, Catherine Clark, and P. Avalar, are running unopposed in their Democratic leadership elections. Um, there's no voices of dissent. I think uh, everyone's on board for this. So, um, you know, Democrats seem to be having a unified voice in that sense. Um, we'll see how long that stays. You know, we'll see if uh, Hakeem Jeffries is still a leader, you know, two years from now, four years from now, six years from now, eight years from now. We'll see how long this lasts. And then just a brief side note, you know, nothing's changing in regards to Chuck Schumer being the leader over on the Senate side. Of course, Mitch McConnell, the longtime leader, both majority and now minority leader of the Republicans in the Senate, is you know dealing with his his own resistance from Rick Scott. Rick Scott did not run against him. It did not work. You know, uh, Mitch McConnell uh, is pretty good at his job. Republican senators love him. 
Um, that was always going to be a long shot for Rick Scott. But we've seen a, a, a dispute play out in public between Rick Scott, who's run the NRSC, the Cyclops National Republican Senatorial Committee. That's the committee that's in charge of recruiting Senate candidates and raising money for Senate candidates and deciding where that money goes. Mitch McConnell has had a lot of public disagreements and private disagreements with Rick Scott about how that money should be spent, about which candidates to support, um, and the strategies being used in the campaigns. Um, Rick Scott did not have a good light on election night. You know, uh, but you know, Rick Scott didn't ask if he's going to run for Senate Majority Leader or Senate Minority Leader against Mitch McConnell. Uh, they've held their election. Mitch McConnell sat when he won. I think Rick Scott got maybe eight votes out of 49 members. Um, so yeah, you know, it, it, the Senate leadership stays the same. Uh, in the House, there's leadership changes all over the place, you know, at least especially on the Democratic side. And then, you know, Kevin McCarthy was always. Is still currently the top House Republican, but now is coming into Speaker of the House position. That's going to be a big change in how the House is run. He's already uh, announced a lot of rule changes he wants to make in the next Congress. Um, but going back to Alice's original question, the 118th Congress, you know, I, I don't think a lot gets done legislatively. I think you have House Republicans launching investigations um, on numerous fronts to try to make Democrats look bad. I think on the Senate side, you've got, you know, not very much consequential legislation. You've got Senate Democrats approving judges and moving the pipeline of federal judges uh, under the Biden administration. I agree. Well, we definitely have a lot to look forward to and a ton of changes coming up on the horizon. So thank you both for sharing your thoughts and breaking it down into bite-sized pieces for us. Glad to be here and very excited to do it again. Thank you, Jacob. Always love doing this and I look forward to doing it again in the coming months as a 2024 heats up. Thanks, Allison. Absolutely. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Jacob. Well, thank you for listening to the NALFA Affordable Housing Podcast. Be sure to join us next time for more insightful affordable housing discussions. 